Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to the author, academic and literary critic, Merve Emra. We spoke to Merve about the differences in academia between the US and the UK, her books, including on the Myers-Briggs personality test, and her criticism for the New Yorker and the New York Review of Books. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Merve, to Always Take Notes. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Could we start at the beginning? Where does your love of literature come from? Probably from my first grade teacher, when my family moved to the United States from Turkey, I didn't speak any English and my parents couldn't afford childcare. So they would often leave me during the afternoon with my first grade teacher who gave me lots and lots of books to read. And I actually recently found one of the books that she gave me to take home uh, by a wonderful children's book author named William Steig, who you may or may not know, but the book is called Amos and Boris. And there's a dedication in it from my teacher, Jackie. And it says, you showed up to my class not speaking a word of English, and now you can read and write like a pro. Uh, (laughs) And I thought that was very lovely. But I remember her class, and I remember reading those books, and I remember their kind of enchanted quality. So it almost certainly started in childhood. We had um, Elif Shafak on quite recently, and she obviously also had Turkish first language writer. And she talked quite a lot about her the influence of, of that interplay between the two languages on her evolution as a writer. Is that something that you feel that you, you know, you're coming from a different linguistic universe has had a bearing on the way you write English? Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, I think anytime you exist between two or three or four or however many languages, there's always something fascinating about the fact that different people use different words to indicate what they take to be similar things. And that immediately, immediately language makes itself available as a space of play, as a space of experimentation, as a space of transportation. And so I think from a very early age, I was perhaps not consciously aware of that, but certainly aware of it in my everyday life. And I continue to be fascinated by that. And so what informed your decision to study at university? Had you remained passionate about books from first grade onwards? I had, but I wasn't an English major. That's not what I studied when I was an undergraduate. I studied political science and statistics. And I started my career as a management consultant. And I worked at a company called Bain & Company, which you may or may not know. And then I worked a little bit in private equity. And I was so extraordinarily bored. The kinds of questions that they asked were simply uninteresting to me, which is not to say that they are uninteresting questions. I'm sure there are people who find it interesting to consider how companies can grow or what new and profitable spaces they can enter, but I am not that person. And I found myself sneaking novels into work and reading them under my desk. 
And I eventually decided to apply for a PhD in English literature, much to the chagrin of my parents who could not believe how much money I would be giving up to go be an impoverished graduate student. Uh, but it was the best decision of my life. And I cannot imagine what my life would look like if I had stayed in the corporate world. I was interested to ask, as someone who's had a kind of foothold in both American and British higher education, what your relative experiences of, of the two and your impressions of the two have been, both as an undergraduate and a graduate student in the US and now as, a, as faculty in the UK. And I was fascinated by this. I went the other way in, in that I did an undergraduate at, at Oxford and then I went to graduate school in the US. And I found it was only really that American experience that cast some of the eccentricities of of Britain into relief. But I was wondering what, you know, your experience both at different stages and in, in different countries has been like. That's a that's a great question. And I would say that the Oxbridge system has particular eccentricities that should not be generalized to the UK system. And I think that's in some ways symptomatic of something even more interesting, which is how much Oxford and Cambridge dominate the British imagination of what university is or what it's supposed to be, when in fact there are dozens upon dozens of other universities in the UK that do things very, very differently from the way that Oxford and Cambridge do things. But you know, to answer your question, I would start even prior to higher education. I would start with primary school. So I have two young children who were in a state school in Oxford. And it was very interesting to see how much their education was beholden to the government and to government regulation of how they had to spend their time and how they were not allowed to spend their time. So their head teacher actually left at the end of last year because she said, I cannot teach if what I am teaching to are these persistent and ever increasing government metrics of you know, how we have to pass kids through the system, but we can't devote the kind of time that we want to various creative endeavors. So she really wanted a separate art class and a separate music class for the students. And she wasn't allowed to do that ultimately. Um, so I think it starts really even prior to higher education. I think it starts with primary and secondary education. And I think the government in the UK is much more involved and exercises much more oversight over the way that education takes place than in the US. It's starting to change in the US. It's unfortunately, I think, becoming a little bit more metric-based, um, but I think that that's to the disadvantage of students. So my experience was that there is a much stronger strand of liberal progressive education in the US that what is emphasized is not necessarily achievement according to certain kinds of metrics. I mean, that's not absent, but there is a greater emphasis, I think, on creative and critical thinking, on the idea that your education might be a place not just to accomplish something, but a place for a kind of self-actualization. Um, and there is much more of an emphasis, I think, on discussion-based learning. So to me, the strangest part of being trained in the US and then coming to Oxford was that the seminar model that the American liberal arts classroom prides itself on simply doesn't translate to the UK context. And the tutorial model, which I think is very specific to the Oxford system, is in my opinion, not a particularly logical way to organize an undergraduate education. And it is not a scalable way to organize undergraduate education. It's a system that was built for children who went to very elite schools, who feel very comfortable sitting in a room and talking to you one-on-one -on -one about the papers that they've written, 
But once you get students from what Oxford likes to call non-traditional backgrounds, it becomes very difficult to scale that model. I do not think you can diversify the tutorial system. You need a total rethinking of how that system should be organized in order to accomplish anything meaningful uh, when it comes to diversity or equality or inclusiveness. And so that has been a major, major difference, I think, between the two educational systems or between, you know, liberal arts education in the US and the Oxbridge system in the UK. What was your experience of doing a PhD like, and in your words, as a penniless graduate student? And how did you fund it? Had you saved up money from your consultancy private equity years and then kind of put yourself through it? Or did you get a grant? I had saved up money. So that was helpful. I worked as a freelance editor at a publication called the Los Angeles Review of Books. And I was paid $150 for every piece that I edited. So there was a point at which I was no longer, I no longer had health insurance through the university. And so the four pieces that I edited, the $600 that I made from the LA Review of Books was going to purchasing private health insurance in New York. I I was also pregnant at the time, actually. So that was very necessary. Um, So it was a combination of my previous savings, plus working a couple of extra jobs here and there, editing jobs, RA jobs, things like that, in order to support myself through graduate school. I should also say that I was at Yale and relative to maybe every other graduate program in the United States and certainly in the UK, I was comparatively very generously funded. Uh, So I, you know, my education was paid for by the university. And then I had a stipend that I think was something like $30,000 a year, which in, you know, between 2009 and 2015, you could live on that in New Haven and you could live on that relatively comfortably. But there were still things that we didn't have access to. You know, we didn't have dental care. We didn't have vision coverage. Uh, graduate students certainly were not treated like they were laborers. They were not recognized as such. And one of the things that's been heartening to me is to see the unionization efforts that have been going on in the United States in order to get, in order to recognize graduate students as workers and to compensate them fairly and to give them the kinds of benefits that workers everywhere should get. A striking part of your career looking at the work you've done has been this way that you've straddled academia and journalism and also writing for a wider audience. Was that a an approach or a strategy that you took deliberately from the get-go or was that something that just evolved as your career progressed? No, that evolved as my career progressed. I was really determined to be an academic when I started and I didn't want to distract myself with any other kind of writing. So when I was in graduate school, my priority was writing my dissertation and writing articles and turning my dissertation into a book and getting an academic job. And it was only once I saw that there was a possibility to take the kinds of skills that I use in the classroom and to transmute them or to migrate them into the realm of writing that I thought, well, this could be an interesting thing to do, not necessarily as a supplement to my research as an academic, but as a different kind of teaching. For me, the connection between my criticism and my scholarly career has always been a connection that's forged in and around the classroom rather than in and around my research. So I think of my criticism as an opportunity to educate the same way that I think of the classroom as a place where you can produce criticism in conversation with your students. I saw an interview with you where you 
said something along those lines that when you're writing a piece of journalism, you start by thinking, how would I teach this book? Absolutely. Yeah, that is always the first question that I ask myself. I think if I were teaching this over the course of a week with two hour long lectures on a you know 250 to 300 page book, how would I structure those lectures? What is it that I think my students would need me to tell them about the conditions under which this novel were produced? How would I connect those questions of its conditions of production, whether historical, material, geographical, whatever? How would I connect those questions to the style, the genre, the form of the book under discussion? What is it that I would want my students to take away uh, from this lecture? How is it that I would want them to speak intelligently about this book to someone who perhaps had never read it or who didn't have that vocabulary? that literary critical vocabulary easily at their disposal. So those are always the questions that I ask when I start to write a piece of criticism. And could you give us just a, a quick summary of how your career developed from being a, a penniless graduate student to moving to a, you know, a, a more, one would hope, secure base in academia and crossing an ocean? How did that journey develop? Now that you've said penniless graduate student a couple of times, I feel like I had some pennies. I was in a, I was being a little bit, a little bit hyperbolic. Like I said, I was, I was well-funded. I, so I went to graduate school in 2009. I left graduate school in 2015, and I left with a fellowship at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in Cambridge, the one over here, not the one over there. I, and I, at the same time, had gotten a job at McGill University in Montreal. So I did the fellowship first, and I had my first child while I was doing that fellowship. Uh, interestingly, that fellowship came with no parental leave policy. So I had to kind of throw myself on the mercy of the American Academy to just let me stay at home for a little bit instead of going up to Boston. And then I did that for a year. And then after that, we moved to Montreal and we lived in Montreal for two years. And then after that, we moved to Oxford. And while we were in Oxford, I was there for two years. And then I spent a year in Berlin at the Wissenschaftskolleg, the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin, and then came back to Oxford. And now actually I'm in the U.S. on a fellowship at Wesleyan University. So that's where I am right now. And equally, how has your journalism career developed? How have you gone from working at the LARB to being you know, contracted to The New Yorker? I started by writing for the LA Review of Books, and then I branched out. I wrote for the Boston Review. I wrote for The Nation. I wrote a piece for the Boston Review that got a lot of attention, whether rightly or wrongly, called Two Paths for the Personal Essay. And it was after that piece that more, you know, people that were working at sort of prestige publications started writing and saying, will you write for us? So after that, I wrote for Harper's, I wrote for the New York Review of Books, I wrote for the New York Times Magazine, and then finally started writing for the New Yorker really only about two years ago and became a regular writer for them almost exactly a year ago. So that is in the long term, a more kind of recent development in my in my career. But one of the things that I've learned from that whole experience, you know, beginning from working with the LA Review of Books to working for The New Yorker, is that it really, really, really matters who your editor is. It is extremely important to have an editor who understands you, who understands what you want to do, the kind of writing that you want to do, 
And maybe even more important, an editor who is capable of picking assignments for you that he or she knows will give you an opportunity uh, not only to do what you already do well, but to help you grow a certain set of skills that you might not have developed as much as you want to. So at the New York Review of Books, I've been very fortunate to work with Gabe Winslow-Yost and Jana Prickle, who are both amazing. And my editor at The New Yorker, Leo Carey, is, I think, just fabulous. I can't say enough good things. I can't say enough good things about him. I, I was going to ask, actually, uh, you know, on this whole area of, of academic versus non-academic writing, this is something that we've had really interesting discussions on the show before with people who have a foot in, in both those worlds. Do you feel that you have a, a different register or a different a different approach or workflow when you're writing for a non-academic audience and for an academic audience or do you feel that you have a an approach that works that works for both i was interested reading the pieces you sent over that you know they are i was trying to work out what whether there was a what whether you were trying to straddle both or whether this was a different a different kind of tone or could you could you unpack that a little bit yeah no it's 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 completely different i mean i i think of them I do think of them as two different professions and they are two different careers. Being an academic and writing for an academic audience has its own set of protocols and its own set of procedures. The most important one I would flag is that academic articles, academic books need to go through a process of peer review. And part of the function of peer review is yes, of course, to make your argument stronger or sounder or more rigorous or to point out what you could be doing differently that you're not doing. But another large part of its purpose is to make sure that you are cleaving to a certain set of essentially bureaucratized norms for what academic writing is supposed to do and who academic writing is supposed to speak to. Academic writing is supposed to speak to other academics. It is a highly institutionalized and highly specific and specialized form of writing. Criticism is not that. I think the benefit of being a critic is that even when you're writing for an institution that purportedly has a strong house style, as everyone claims the New Yorker does, but it really doesn't, even when you're writing for an institution with a strong house style as a critic, you create your own audience. And you can do what you want with that audience. If you want to educate them, you can educate them. If you want to charm them or entertain them or scold them, you can do all three of those things. One of the people that I've learned the most from or that I've learned to think about criticism and academia from is a scholar named John Guillory, wrote a wonderful book called Cultural Criticism, uh, Cultural Capital, sorry, back in 1993, has a new book coming out called Professing Criticism. And one of the things he says in that book is says, he says, the critic is self-authorized. The academic is not self-authorized. And that makes all the difference in the world in what kind of register you can speak in, what kind of tone you can assume, what kind of knowledge, pre-knowledge you can assume on the part of your audience, what sort of evidence you can marshal, what kinds of arguments you can make, how the things that you write circulate or are disseminated and are consecrated. So I think of them, like I said, as separate, even though perhaps there are some skills that you can take from one and apply to the other. How is your week divided between your academic responsibilities and your journalism and, and criticism? So 
I would add to that my teaching because that takes up a fair amount of time. So right now on this fellowship, I teach one day a week. And I generally try, even when I'm not on fellowship, to stack all of my teaching at the beginning of the week. So to do two days of teaching so that I have three days left for writing. And I try to alternate between works of criticism and works of scholarship. Usually on days when I'm writing, I will try to write, uh, I, I try to meet a quota of a thousand words a day. Those don't have to be uh, those don't have to be new. So sometimes revising something will meet that quota for me. But usually I try to make it new. And I usually do all of my reading at night after my kids go to sleep. So my kids go to sleep around nine, and I'll usually stay up until about midnight reading. So that's how I divide my life. I should say it's a slightly monkish style of living. I don't really watch any television. I I don't watch streaming series. I don't really see movies. I don't listen to podcasts. I think my intake, my my cultural consumption is almost exclusively verbal, the verbal arts, the written verbal arts, I should say, because podcasts, of course, are a, are a verbal art too. Um, but that's the only way that I found it possible to do the the various things that I do. Another point that I often think about thinking back to my own English degree is the difference between um, marking and editing. So my you know recollection of university, almost without exception, I think possibly a bit different for some of the longer continually assessed pieces of work was that you would write an essay and it would be marked and it would then it would be done. You know, the thing the thing would go. Whereas my experience writing professionally in in all sorts of contexts, books and journalism has always been of, of the edit, you know, that the thing that you turn in first has been a is a point of departure for a process and for a backward and forth between between you and interlocutor. And I, I kind of in some ways wish there had been more editing at university. And I wonder what what your thoughts are on that and whether there's there's margin for that within the system as it operates at present. I'll give you two answers. The first is I don't think my students want that. <laughs> I, and I would be keen to talk to the student who would want to be edited. Because my sense is that in order to enjoy editing, which I really do, I really like the process of being edited. I like the conversation that takes place. I like the different rounds of editing. I like that Leo will give me different edits than the copy editor who will give me different edits than the fact checker. All of those things make me think differently about the work. But I do think in order to undergo that and to take a sense of pleasure from it and to learn from it, which I think requires taking pleasure from it, you really have to be capable of taking your ego out of it. I really think you have to commit to a kind of mindset where you believe that what everyone wants at the end of the day is for this piece of writing to be the best piece of writing it can possibly be. And I think that requires a certain toughness, a mental toughness on the part of the writer. And I think it also requires a certain kind of compassion on the part of the editor, because I have worked with editors who I have felt were trying to be punitive or condescending. And I don't think that that is good for anybody. I don't know that students have that toughness. And I don't say that in the sense that I think students are sensitive or anything like that. I simply think that because of the institutional position they're in and the massive power differential between you as their educator and their role as your student, 
it is really hard for them to commit to that mindset. And it's really hard for them to not feel like they're being judged or it's really hard for them to believe sometimes that your evaluation of them can go hand in hand with the desire simply to make their work better. So I think that there are just certain institutional reasons why marking and editing cannot be the same thing. I will also say that here's another difference, um, another different Simon between the UK and the US model. In the US model, we mark our own students. So my students at Wesleyan will send me drafts and they'll say, here's my thesis statement. Here's a first draft of the first paragraph. What do you think? And we have a conversation about it. And then when I'm marking it, one of the things that I always bear in mind is like, you know, how much work has been put into this and how much has changed from the initial version of what they gave me. And I think that's a good thing. Whereas in the UK, you never mark your own students. Someone else is always marking your own students. And I understand the rationale for that, that there is a kind of fairness in the idea that marking takes place, you know, double, double blinded. But I also think that what's lost is the idea that the person who marks you is also the person who you're having a conversation with about the work up to the point where you turn it in. And I'm really not saying that one system is better than another, just that there are different things that are lost and different things that are gained in between the two systems. In terms of your own approach to editing, have you always found it a positive affirming experience or has that come with finding editors that you just work really well with? I have really had very, very few negative experiences with editors. I, I am almost always extremely grateful for the work that they put in. I'm extremely grateful for their thoughtfulness. I'm just grateful that someone's paying attention to my writing with the kind of depth and clarity that I think editors tend to bring to it. And I think sometimes the difference between a very good editor and a fine editor is just a difference of time. So when you have an institution like the New Yorker that is a highly professionalized, highly bureaucratized institution where the editors have time to do nothing other than be editors, that's different than when you're writing for a publication where the editor is also the fact checker, is also responsible for writing the top matter, is also responsible for sourcing the illustrations. And so that creates a really different dynamic than an institution that has the money and has the history to think carefully about how to divide labor. I was going to say, I, I thought your your point about ego was very acute, I thought. And the, my recollection of that particularly is, is actually particularly in the concept of of the workshop you know the, the writing workshop which I recall doing not um in the UK but when I was at journalism school in New York and I remember it in retrospect as sort of a slightly ghastly experience with a lot of to use a real Britishism kind of willy waving like a lot of people um like uh trying to one-up each other and things and having done it later in my career in in a writer's residency environment where it was a you know a much more professional and much more kind of people at a further stage in their career and what what made it so 
different and so wonderful environment was that people had checked their ego, right? That people were willing to be collaborative and and so forth. I was wondering if we could could move a little bit now, could you to tell us uh, about your book on Myers Briggs and how that came about, and you know what what some of the experience of of putting that together was like. I wanted to write a book on personality and literature, and started doing a little bit of research. I thought it would be an academic book. And I started doing a little bit of research and had remembered taking a Myers-Briggs test or an assessment when I was working as a consultant. And I remember too being really shocked by how well I thought the indicator got me. And I remember finally thinking that I had never really had access to a vocabulary of the self. It's not the kind of family that I grew up in. I, it wasn't something that I was ever really exposed to in college as a political science major. And so when I was thinking about writing this book, I remembered the MBTI and I thought, let me do a little bit of research into it. And I was shocked to discover that the people who had designed it were a mother and daughter. I thought for sure it was two men in one of the early or mid-century science laboratories on the East Coast, but it was a mother and a daughter, Catherine and Isabel, who had basically designed it at their kitchen table. So once I started reading about them, I became very interested in learning more and tried to get access to their archives, which are down at the University of Florida. And I had an extremely difficult time getting permission from the Myers-Briggs Foundation to access the archive, and in fact, ended up not getting permission. And that became the cornerstone from which the book grew, was this question of, you know, why were they being so protective? Why were they being so secretive over the legacy of these two women? Wasn't this, in fact, the kind of story that was totally ripe for a feminist recovery project? And what was in that archive? And what was part of the history of personality that people didn't want us to know about. Am I right in thinking that you ended up paying a graduate student in Melbourne to photocopy some documents for you as part of this research process? It wasn't a graduate student. It was a man who had worked at the Myers-Briggs Foundation and had left, but had a whole, had a, a couple of boxes of documents that he had taken with him. And when I published the article that preceded the book, and I wrote in that article about my difficulty with the foundation and how they made me go to this Myers-Briggs training program or re-education program, as they called it, and how they denied me access even after they made me jump through all of these hoops, he wrote to me and he said, I think you were very badly treated by the foundation. If it's at all helpful, here are these boxes of documents. And he took the boxes to the University of Melbourne, and I did pay a graduate student there to photocopy all of the boxes that he had, all of the papers and all of the boxes that he had brought. And those were very helpful to telling the kind of latter part of this story, which I didn't have any archival documentation for until that point. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the author, academic and literary critic, Merve Emra. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week, we're going to hear from the novelist and screenwriter, William Boyd, 
And he's going to talk to you about failure. I've had many failures in my professional career. Uh, I had one last week. And the thing that I realize from them, because usually these are, these failures, are, in my experience, have occurred in the world of films and television, is that um, these people are wrong and you are right. And so uh, you roll with the punches and you pick yourself up and you get on with the job. Uh, that's what I've learned from failures. And I, I, I reiterate, I've had many, many professional failures in my, in my life, in my 40 year career. Things do not always go swimmingly, but um, onwards and upwards, that old cliche is very pertinent. That was William Boyd. And if you were interested in what William had to say, you can listen to our full interview with him via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. But for now, back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Merve Emra. We really love on the show to get into the kind of nitty gritty of process and things like that. And I was wondering if on, on one of the pieces you sent over, which I really enjoyed reading, if we could just kind of lift the lid on on one of those and, and you just take us through the, the life cycle of it. And I thought perhaps the Elizabeth Hardwick one, which I, I kind of found fascinating and it seems to me a bit of an act of meta criticism in that you were writing in the New York Review of Books about the woman who had co-founded the the New York Review of Books. If you just maybe take us through the story of that commission from the gestation of the idea to the approach you took with um, your your research and then how the edit worked and then the you know the reaction after it came out as well. Yeah so that I mean they approached me and said would you like to write about her for us which felt like a tremendous honor uh, and I was I remain very grateful to Yana and, and Gabe for offering me that that piece. Uh, she has been a very important figure for me in thinking about criticism, in thinking about the relationship between academic work and criticism. She went to graduate school herself. She left before writing her dissertation. She left uh, not only because she found it, I think, frankly, a little bit boring, but also because she felt like it was overrun with very senior men who were not going to help her get a job on which she could live and on which she could live in New York. And so, and and then she took, I think, a great deal of the reading that she did uh, and many of the skills which she learned to think about literature and brought those to her criticism. And so she has been an important figure for me in that respect. So I felt very grateful that they asked me to write that piece. I read the biography, Kathy Curtis's biography of Hardwick, which was the peg for that piece. And it's it's not very, it's not fair probably to repeat here what I thought of it. You can read the piece if you wanna know what I thought of it. But I thought that ultimately Hardwick deserved better. And I thought, how could I, write in 8,000 words, a kind of mini biography of Elizabeth Hardwick that would do what Kathy Curtis's biography didn't do, I thought, which was honor her properly. Hardwick is very, very interested in that concept of honor and the idea that writing about someone and writing about them with the right kind of detachment and respect could be an act of honoring them 
much more so than digging out all of their dirty laundry and all of the gossip that surrounded them would be. So I didn't want to write a biography based on the biography, which I didn't think was very good. Instead, I found almost eight hours worth of tape recordings of Hardwick at the University of Kentucky's oral archives. And it's eight hours in which she talks with the interviewer, whose name I'm forgetting now. She talks to him about everything, where she was born in Kentucky, what it was like growing up in her family, her relationship with her parents, how she came to New York, how she left New York, how she went back, how she met Robert Lowell, her early writing, their travels in Europe, their marriage, their divorce, and everything really leading up to sleepless nights. And so I didn't go back to the biography, but I listened to and I transcribed those eight hours of, of tape recordings. And I used those as the basis along with her essays and the letters that had been published in the Dolphin letters, the letters between her and Lowell and their crowd. I use those as the basis for writing that piece. When you're wrangling so much material, do you find that a structure sort of presents itself or is that something that you are, you know, working on through multiple drafts, you're shaping and recrafting it all the time? Yeah, this one this one was an easy structure because it's biography. Biography is always a kind of easy structure because you just do it chronologically. So this piece begins with a kind of argument about the ideal critic or the consummate critic, I think is what I call her. It begins with that and then it just tells the story of her life from its beginning. I think that chronology is always your friend. So the other piece that I sent you on Leonora Carrington was originally organized really differently. It was organized non-chronologically. And I almost always write a first draft that is non-chronological. And then in a second draft, I'm like, Obviously, the easiest way to do this is chronologically. Why did I do it any other way? So when you're writing, I think, biography or a biographically inflected piece of criticism, organizing it chronologically always makes sense. I think structure becomes slightly more complicated when you're writing, let's say, an essay about someone's life work and you don't want to do it biographically. You want to do it maybe thematically you want to do it with one argument or sub-argument or sub-claim leading to the other, then I think structure becomes a little bit hairier, a little trickier to figure out. I'd be interested to know what the reaction of your academic peer group has been as you've developed this career writing criticism and then writing trade books. And we've this has come up again in previous interviews, particularly with historians, where we've had very successful, uh, quote-unquote, popular historians who, who describe a sort of weird dynamic of you know, envy and skepticism between the, the two sides of it. And I was wondering, how does it work in the junior common room or the senior common room, as it were, or something when you when you land one of these big pieces? And do, you know, is there envy or, or is there, you know, we, we had um, Orlando Fajis on and he is yet to air, but he told us this uh, story about how he wrote this, you know, smash book about Russia that sold a gazillion copies in his 30s. And his boss at Cambridge, like, very snidely said it's beautifully written as though it was like it's therefore not real history um i mean how is how has that piece worked for you without perhaps naming names but 
Yeah, it's funny because I joke that every time one of my pieces comes out, you know, we get these magazines in the senior common room at Worcester. And every time my name is on the cover of the NYRB or the New Yorker or whatever, that issue somehow mysteriously disappears. <laughs> you know, I think I'm trying to figure out how to answer this without naming names or without being ungenerous, because I think that what I would say uh, is that it is an immense privilege to have the kind of audience that I have. And most academics do not have access to that kind of audience. And at the same time that they don't have access to that kind of audience, the audiences that they do have access to, which are their students and other academics are shrinking. And they're shrinking because of various austerity measures that have deprioritized the humanities and have prioritized either the pre-professional schools, the professional schools, or STEM. So I think that the best way to understand that envy is to understand it as symptomatic of these larger crises that we are facing and to figure out how we can create a world or create institutions where there is no reason for that envy to surface in the first place. Now that is my most generous answer. I was going to say that is highly magnanimous. I wanted I wanted to ask as well. Just just I know I think you're less generous answer, but <laughs> I, I just just this is slightly interrupting. But I, I was interested to know as well whether there there is a, a British and American difference here. You know, one hundred percent. I mean, Americans like celebrity in a way that I feel like the Brits don't. And I think that, you know, it's it's interesting. I was I was hired by a man named Jonathan Bate, who you might know, and his wife, Paula Byrne, and they were extremely good to me. And they were very supportive of the kind of work that I did. And I think they were supportive just in general of bringing the humanities into the public in a more capacious and accessible way. I they left. I think within the first year that I was hired. And since then, my world has been very much the world of London and the publishing scene and the kind of prize scene there. And I have felt very welcomed by people at, you know, the LRB, the Booker Foundation. I was one of the judges for the International Booker Prize last year. And then in the US, I feel like American institutions, American universities are much more interested in figuring out how they can have academics speak to a broader public. So I have felt much more welcome here as well. I don't know what it is about and I don't want to say it's about UK education in general, right? It really might be a kind of Ox Oxford, Cambridge specific thing that there is a sense that what they do as academics needs to be valued and protected. And anything that comes in from the outside world seems to me to be viewed more as a threat than as an opportunity. And I don't think they can survive like that for very long. Like I said, because all of these industries, whether it's publishing, whether it's academia, the, all the culture industries are under threat. And it's not good for people in any of those positions, I think, to villainize one another. What we really need to do is find ways to work with each other so that we can make an argument for culture 
as being something that everyone should have access to, whether they have access to it in the school, in the bookstore, through a podcast, it doesn't matter. We should all be working to try to figure out how to support one another in making culture a social good. I mean, I think of it as really akin to like clean air or housing or healthcare, that these are things that everyone should have access to and treating them as occasions for turf wars or bureaucratic skirmishes is very, very, very short-sighted. Yeah, very tactful answer. I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> it's a rule. That... You, should, you should have. You should have. Uh, you should have made me have a drink before I got on. <laughs> <laughs> then yeah. I would have. Then I would have talked so much shit. <laughs> we, should, we should do that with all of our guests, really. It's a rule of the podcast that we ask every guest about money. How has it? We've touched on this obviously in terms of your graduate days, but how has it worked for you with these two poles of your career? get into as much detail or as little as you like, but um, how has finances played a role in your career? Well, I don't think I would have felt comfortable working as a critic if I did not have a secure academic job. Because one thing I'm mindful of is that criticism, again, because the critic is self-authorized, criticism is much more subject to trends. You could be a staff writer one year and you could very easily not the next year. Academia, for whatever its drawbacks and whatever its precarities might be, if you are a permanent academic, if you have tenure, then you are in a much more secure financial position. And I think that makes it possible, for me at least, to do other kinds of work. But again, I'm someone who is, I'm anxious about money. I'm anxious about money in part because I moved to a country when I was very young as part of a family that did not have a great deal of money. And even though everyone is you know, very, very comfortable now uh, and is well off now, I think that anxiety remains with you. And I think that's one of the reason why that's one of the reasons why I, you know, not only work as an academic, but work as a critic, work as an editor, do events. I mean, it's not just for the money but it does help alleviate my sense of financial anxiety to always have a couple of different options or income streams. I think also it's different or it's, there's a different set of considerations when you're living in a very expensive city like Oxford is, like London is, like New York is, and it's different when you have children and you know that there are people you need to provide for. And I think that it probably incentivizes a different set of decisions. So I can't always write for small presses or I can't always write for smaller magazines whose editors I really admire and who are producing work that I think is really wonderful uh, because I cannot write for anything below a certain per word rate. And that's because I know that I have a family that I need to provide for. Could you tell us what that rate is? You don't have to, but we are, it would be remiss not to ask. <laughs> I, I can't tell you right now. That's fine. That's <laughs> fine. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to ask about The New Yorker, um, obviously, because it's a publication that exudes a kind of fascination to a lot of writers and uh, stuff like that. How did um, your connection with them come about and how has it developed? And perhaps for people who aren't familiar, could you talk a little bit about the New Yorker editorial process and the fact-checking and the, the kind of way bringing a piece out in, in that environment works? Yeah, so 
I was initially approached by Leo, who I've mentioned before. He had read a piece I'd written in the New York Review of Books about a wonderful novel by Adam Sachs called The Organs of Sense. Didn't get much attention, but it should have. It's a really, really brilliant novel about a 17th century astronomer uh, who predicts an eclipse. He's a blind astronomer who predicts an eclipse. And anyway, should have gotten much more attention. But Leo read that piece and he approached me and he said, I really, you know, he said, I really liked it. Do you, should we work together on something? And the first two pieces that I did for them didn't come out in this order, but one piece that I did for them was a piece on a, on another academic, a woman named Sian Nai, who wrote a book called The Theory of the Gimmick. And at the same time, I did a more kind of standard book review for them on Sigurd Nunez's most recent book. Um, I, I think it's called What Are You Going Through? But now I'm I'm anxious that I've gotten the title wrong, but very, very, also very, very good novel. And I think to me, what was, you know, so I think all of the editors at the New Yorker probably have different editorial styles. My experience with Leo, which I find to be a really productive experience, is that I will usually send a draft. He will call me. We will have a kind of high level conversation over what the draft is doing well and what the draft is doing not so well. And then I will write a second draft. That draft, he will usually line edit. I have a slightly insane process, which is that after I've been line edited, I go back and I retype the whole thing myself in part because it helps me uh, feel better about certain line edits where ego might get in the way and where I'm like, no, 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 I love that phrase. I don't want to get rid of that phrase. But once I type it out, it feels like it becomes my phrase <laughs> or my lack of phrase, even though someone else has cut it. So I will retype it. From there, uh, it will go through a fact check read. And actually, at this point, I love working with the fact checkers. I think the New Yorker fact checkers are just extraordinary. And I have started to write in such a way that anticipates their fact checking objections. And I have found that that has been immensely helpful for the precision of my own writing process, uh, where I'm always thinking now with every sentence I write, every word I put down, not just does this sound right? Is this moving the argument from point A to point B? But would this pass muster with the fact checkers? After it goes through fact-checking, as you're getting closer toward closing the piece, which usually happens over the course of three to four fairly intense days, it goes through multiple copy reads. I think it probably goes through three or four proofs. And everyone reads that, the copy editor, the fact-checker, me, Leo. And, you know, really up until the very last minute, we are making small, small, small changes here and there. We're coming towards the end of our time, but I wanted to ask about the International Booker, which you alluded to earlier. Um, how did that opportunity come about and what's the process like? Is it, you know, truly a book a day that you have to read or more? Oh, it's more. It's more. How did that come about? I feel like people underestimate how much happens via Twitter DMs. So I, I just got a DM from Fiametta Rocco, the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant Fiametta Rocco. And she was like, hey, do you want to judge this prize? <laughs> And I actually thought, um, I thought it was a prank. So I said, here's my number, call me. And she called and it turned out it wasn't, it wasn't a prank. Um, and actually the, the most memorable part of that conversation to me was I said, you know, who else is judging? 
who else have you asked? And she said, oh, well, we've asked Colin Firth. And I was like secretly Googling, you know, Colin Firth novelist question mark to make sure that there wasn't a novelist I didn't know of who happened to have the same name as the actor. I thought for a minute you were saying that you didn't know who Colin Firth was. And I was like, wow, you really don't watch films on television. <laughs> I, please. And then, and then, of course, I spent, of course, I then spent the next three days reading a lot of celebrity gossip about Colin Firth instead of about the International Booker Prize. And then, you know, the next time I talked to Fiametta, she was like, oh, he's too busy filming. He can't do it. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll still judge. I'll still judge your prize even without Colin Firth. Uh, but no, we had an amazing, amazing panel. So it was the first year that a translator was chairing, Frank Wynn. And there was another translator, Jeremy Tang, on it as well. And then Patina Gapa and, uh, and Viv Graskoff. And it was the most fun reading experience of my entire life. Those four people are so brilliant and so funny and so dedicated. And I cannot tell you how much I looked forward to getting on Zoom or being in the room with them and going through our list of books. We had 137. And I think we did the initial read over a series of five months, maybe. So there were some months where we had to read 25 books, which yes, is something like a book a day, maybe a little bit less. And then there was one month where I think we had to do 43. So it was an incredibly intense time commitment, but a really, really, really rewarding one. And I think the way that it has paid itself forward has been very nice too. So I'm quite close with many of the authors and the translators that ended up on the shortlist now. And it's introduced me to that world of translation in a way that I really wasn't familiar with before. Like I said, I'm currently on a fellowship at Wesleyan. Jeremy Tiang, my co-judge, my co-panelist is also up at Wesleyan helping to teach a class on multilingual writing. And, you know, to go back to a theme that's been coming up during our conversation, one thing I'm always thinking about is how I can bring the different things that I do outside of the classroom into the classroom. And I think the International Booker was really helpful for thinking about what it would look like to uh, teach more multilingual writing classes, to offer a program in translation, to make that something that we are introducing children in a fairly monolingual country to at an early enough age so that you can actually create readers for the kinds of books that the International Booker Prize values. A final question for me would be about your uh, Elena Ferrante book. We interviewed um, Anne Goldstein um, a little while ago, her, her, her translator. Uh, could you tell us about you know, that experience of, you, it's right, you, you corresponded with her, but you know, you, you kind of- I mean, I'd be curious to know, I'll, I'll listen to your interview with Anne, who I think is a genius and I really just like as a, as a person. But you know, I would write questions I'd send them to Michael Reynolds at Europa. Michael would send them to Anne to translate. She would send them back to Michael. Michael would somehow get them to Elena Ferrante, who would write her answers in Italian, send them back to Michael, who would send them to Anne to translate, who would send them back to Michael, who would send them to me. So the idea that that is an interview, or the question is, what do you have to believe to believe that that amounts to an interview, as opposed to just two people reading each other's writing. And I think that that's what's kind of brilliant about the whole concept or the whole apparatus around Elena Ferrante. Are, it's the ways that we are invited to think about 
the difference between interacting with a person and believing in the existence of a person and interacting with writing and believing that all of our encounters with other people are mediated by language in such a way that we don't really get to know other people or we only know them through this very, very, very mediated form, which is language. And that allows for all kinds of misinterpretations, all kinds of miscommunications, all kinds of misapprehensions. And I think that's what all of her work is about. And that's what she has become about as a figure. And I think no one knows that better than Anne, probably. Well, thank you very much for everything, Merve, and wishing you all the very best with all of your ventures going forward. Thank you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Merva Emra. She has a website, www.mervaemra.com. She's on Twitter at Mervatum, which is how we hope you pronounce it. And her book, What's Your Type, is published by HarperCollins UK. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Merva? I really enjoyed the interview. And it seemed to be part of a, a kind of longer conversation that we've been having on the podcast about the relationship between academia and publishing and writing for a wider audience. Um, so thinking about the conversation that we had with Robert Douglas Fairhurst recently, also further back with Hermione Lee. And it seems that, you know, there's there's this kind of fascinating line that, that these people are walking. And it's a, it's a complicated one in terms of, you know, style and approach in terms of actual writing technicalities, but also how you are perceived in those two different communities that you, you have a foot in. And I thought she gave some thoughtful, if very diplomatic answers about you know, how that has, has worked for her. What about you, Richard? Yeah, maybe we should have taken her up on her suggestion of a alcoholic beverage beforehand. Um, I, yeah, I agree. And I thought she was particularly thoughtful on the nature of a lot of modern literary criticism, which kind of skates on the surface of subject and theme rather than getting into syntax and some of the more technical analysis, um, which is something that she tries to do. Um, and I enjoyed hearing about her research process. She seems like a phenomenally prolific and well-organized writer so I, I admire and envy her yeah I thought I thought definitely her work process was up in the sort of most impressive slash intimidating we've had on the podcast <laughs> I was thinking it was it Samantha Sabronian we had who seemed to like not have any sleep mm. and work all the time but she was um yeah impressive too so a great addition to have to our um canon of interviews anyway this has been Always Take Notes hosted by me Simon Aikum and me Rachel Lloyd our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar if you'd like to follow us on social media we're on Twitter under Take Notes Always on Instagram at Always Take Notes if you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.